So I wanna talk about using debt in a business. And the reason why it's on my mind is I was reading an article from um, the Boston Strategy Consulting Group book on strategy. And this is by Bruce Henderson. And it's in the beginning of the book, which is a lot of stuff on very general strategy. And so it's obviously important to him and Boston uh, Consulting Group as a whole. And what I thought was interesting is, you know, I, I'm going to do a separate review of the article and I'm not going to go into it on this, but it's just a general thought on using debt for most businesses. And the, the general consensus, you know, theory of debt in a business is that there's an optimal combination of debt and equity for every business. And what that means is like, you know, all businesses should, you should put actual investor dollars into them, um, equity, but there should also be a component of debt. And the reason behind that as a theory is that it's going to over increase the overall return of a business, whether that, whether you formulate that by return on investment, return on assets, return on equity, however you want to formulate that in your particular business. And, and every business has a different method you should think about in terms of figuring out what's the return of, the, of investment on the business, just like a stock has a return on investment. But the reason debt is always going to increase your return, no matter what form you use, is because the debt principle is always going to stay the same because the lender isn't an owner of the business. So what I mean by that is, you know, the, the bank, when they loan you a thousand bucks, they don't get any of the upside and they just get their interest. And let's say that's 3% because that's kind of the world we're living in right now. They get 3% interest and that's it. If your business doubles in size, their principal doesn't double. It stays the exact same if they loaned you a thousand bucks. It doesn't go to two thousand, it stays at a thousand. They just get the interest and they have a lot of downside risk because what can, what can a loan go to? It can go to zero. Um, that's why, you know, banks when they lend, they want to lend against something, meaning have it secured, but that's, that's a conversation for a different day. The general principle I'm going for is because the bank doesn't participate in the upside, when you borrow, your upside is almost limitless on debt. So let's imagine that you borrowed 100% on your business. So you're starting a business for uh, it costs you a thousand dollars to start and you borrow a thousand dollars and you, 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 uh, you start your business without putting any of your own money in. And let's say the business, uh, gets worth uh, $10,000 by whatever your return, your, your return analysis is you, you sell it for 10,000 or, or whatever. What, what's your return? Well, your return's infinite because you didn't put a dime into it. And that's, you know, truly the power of, of debt is essentially limitless returns on the amount you, you borrow. Your return's infinite. 
you, you do have an interest cost, you know, which is which is going to reduce your return. But you know, as long as your business is growing in a rate in excess of interest, that's all upside to you without any investment on your part. Okay, so why wouldn't you borrow 100% all the time? Well, number one, the bank's generally not gonna loan to you 100%, particularly if you're a small business. They wanna see that you have some skin in the game, meaning you have something to lose. Because again, the bank, when it loans you a thousand bucks, it can get 3% interest or whatever the interest is you know, to, in today's market. So, you know, on a thousand, on a thousand bucks, you know, that's, that's what, 30 bucks a year of interest? Well, that's not much upside for the bank, although the banks can borrow from the federal government, essentially nothing. So maybe their returns are almost limitless. That's not, that's not quite true. But they have a lot of downside because they can lose that thousand bucks if they don't have it secured. So your, your ability to borrow, especially as you're a smaller and smaller business is going to be limited. And, you know, if you're borrowing against your home or something like that, you know, in, in reality, that's not because you're personally liable for it. It's not the same as when a publicly traded corporation like issues a bond and, and gets a loan that way or, or when they borrow from a bank because you're at hundred percent at risk. So I'd view that as, you know, when you're, when you're securing your borrowing with, with personal assets, it's almost like you're putting your own money in there, but it's a double risk because you, you could, you could go to zero because your business could blow up and then you could still own the money. So that's kind of double downside. And, and we'll get to that in a minute, but getting back to my capital structure discussion, the general theory is, is there's some measure of equity and debt that is optimal for a business. And the equity portion, you know, I, I talked about why it's not 100% debt. It has to be some equity because it, you know, at the very minimum, you got to have, the bank's not going to loan 100%. The, the investors, the owners of the business have to have some skin in the game, even a publicly traded company. But, you know, equity is important also as a risk reducer. And let's look at it from, let's look at it. This is the easy way to think of it is, and this is, you know, where I come from too, because I own single family homes as an investment. I have different amounts that I've put in to different single family homes. One of them, I have 100% equity, meaning I put, I bought the house for cash. There's another one, 50%, and a, uh, and a couple that I did 25% down. What, what's important is that determines how much of the rent that I get to keep. So, you know, for the one where I put 100% down, I keep all the rent. For the one I put 50% down, I keep half the rent. And for the one that I put 25% down, I keep, uh, you know, about 25% of the rent. But then I got taxes on that and I got insurance costs. And when you get all done with it, the ones where I have 25% down, I really only take home a couple hundred bucks a month out of you know the rents. Those rents are in the range of $1,500. Whereas, you know, when I take home 100%, yeah, I, you know, after I pay my insurance and taxes, I still have a lot of money. And I'm getting enough money every month 
that I'm building up a savings and a reserve. So if I lose a tenant for three months, that's not that's not a big sweat off my back because number one, I don't have to pay any interest. I, I don't have any mortgage to pay on it. So it can just sit there and I just got to pay the taxes. And number two, I have a big savings from which to pay those taxes from related to that that account, that, that property. Now, my 50% loan to value property, it's a little a little worse if someone gets out there because because I gotta I gotta pay 50% worth of, of of mortgage. My mortgage is half as much as it would be if I did 100% down. But I still have a lot of cash flow on that one, and I'm building up a reserve. And you combine it with my reserves in the other one. I really reduce risk because if I lose a tenant because I don't pay, I got to evict. I, no one's in there for three months. Well, I have enough of a reserve that got built up quickly that I can go ahead and cover that and it's not a big deal. My 25% downs, well, that's kind of a little more risky of a proposition because if I don't have someone in there, I'm, I owe a great deal of mortgage, I, I, I owe a, a larger mortgage as compared to the rent that I get every month. So if I lose a tenant and I don't replace a tenant for three months, I've got a big nut to cover for those three months and I'm gonna seriously dig into my reserves. So that's a question of risk. In the 100% equity uh, house that I have where I bought it for 100% uh, down, um, man, there's really no risk. Cause even the taxes, the taxes are so minimal relative to the rent that I get that if there wasn't anyone in there for a year, the taxes would be less than a month's rent. The 25% downs, man, There, if, if I don't get someone in there for three months, I'm not gonna be sweating it, but it's gonna hurt a little. And that's a measure of risk. Now, if I was 100% uh, loan to value, meaning I borrowed 100% of the purchase price, well, basically all of my rent would go to pay the mortgage and and maybe I'd even have to chip in a little after that but let's say 100% I didn't I wouldn't earn any cash flow and the problem with not earning any cash flow cuz you borrowed so much is when things go wrong you are going to be hurting and hurting bad and in my portfolio of real estate you know when you look at them all together I'm at about a 40% loan to value. And that means that I'm generating enough cash flow that I'm tucking away that I, I can I can stand if, I can cover it if there's not a renter in one of my properties. And in addition, I can cover it from my other properties where I still have cash flow. It would have to be a really weird situation for me to have all of my properties not firing at one time. Well take that if I only had one property. If I only had one property and I was 100% financed and there was no tenant there, I'd be scrambling, okay? If I had 10 properties and I was say 25% down on all of them, 25% equity, well, if one of them went out, I would be able to cover it from the rent from the other properties. And that's where I'm kind of going with this with regards to using debt in business is for small, the smaller your business is, really the more I think you should be at 100% equity because 
you don't have enough scale to deal with things going wrong and you don't have enough margin, meaning margin of safety in your business. And when, you know, pundits talk about capital structure in businesses, a big mistake people make is applying what's good for Apple or what's good for Amazon or even what's good for a smaller publicly traded company or a large private company to kind of a mom and pop, you know, shop that can't make their payroll or can't make their rent if the coronavirus strikes and you you don't have you aren't able to run your business for a month or two. And the coronavirus is an important lesson for small businesses that you cannot rely on debt. I don't think it's a good idea because there's so many risks. The coronavirus is one, but there's a lot of other potential risks that can leave you severely underwater and hurting when things go wrong. Publicly traded companies in the coronavirus, they shuffle things around. They issued bonds. You know, Revlon just restructured some debt because... Uh, they've been experiencing some problems. They've got a lot of options. When you have scale, you have options. The smaller you are in the food chain, the less options you have and the less that I think you should be thinking about using debt at all. Um, so you can sit there and, you know, as you go through, you know, what what is my correct capital structure, you know, Man, unless you've got serious reserves and unless you're making, you know, say profit wise, a, this is going to be a gross generalization, um, and it, but I'm going to make it anyway. Unless you're making, you know, 500,000 plus a year, it's very difficult for me to suggest that you borrow money unless it's directly secured by income producing assets because... If you're borrowing money in a business, you're probably personally guaranteeing it unless your business is large enough. And that, as I said earlier, is a complete disaster because if things go wrong, not only do you lose your income stream from producing the business, you still owe the debt. The reason I'm comfortable in my single family homes is I have an asset that secures that debt that I can always sell if things go bad. You know, my 100% finance property, I don't know anything. So if I sold that, I'd get 100% of the proceeds. But even the 25% down ones, they've appreciated in value since I bought them. And there's enough equity in there that it would be very, very difficult for things to go wrong. And I think you should think about it the same in a business. And maybe an easy way of thinking about that is, you know, say you, you're a franchise business and you own a franchise, uh, restaurant, let's pick Subway. Your your first restaurant that you do, when you don't know what the return's gonna be, you know, you don't know how successful it's gonna be, I don't think you should borrow money personally. Um, you know, I, I think you should come up with the equity yourself and make sure that that business actually runs and runs well before you start borrowing money on it. Maybe your second location, you go 50% down, and maybe as you get into your 10th, 11th, 12th locations, then you can start worrying about, you know, putting less down and leveraging more because it, it's true, your returns are just gonna be higher and that's true. But at the same time, your risk is gonna be greater and you better have a series of income producing assets where you know how much they're gonna produce 
on a consistent basis before you start borrowing significant dollars. And, you know, in, in our business, frankly, we're, we're a gigantic business and we don't borrow anything. And I'm totally comfortable with that as a CFO because our shareholders are comfortable with it and they understand their, their returns are lowered because of it and they're fine with that because it eliminates risk. So I, I always think you should always at least consider a zero debt capital structure. And you know, I don't think CFOs in publicly traded companies or you know, private equity owned companies, they don't have that luxury because they have, re re they have return expectations to meet and there has to be leverage in order to meet those return expectations. But if you own your own business, man, I really think you should think about doing it on a completely debt-free scale. Um, maybe if you borrow money to buy your building or something like that, because it's an asset that you could sell if things went wrong, um, that's okay. But the worst thing that you can do as a business owner is acquire personally guaranteed debt, where if your business goes under, you not only lost your business, but now you're in debt as well. So in sum, I think whenever you see high level talk about capital structures in business and how much debt is appropriate, you need to distinguish when they're talking about publicly traded companies where debt is absolutely required, can be bought a lot cheap, can be borrowed a lot cheaper than you can borrow it and can and is not personally guaranteed by anyone you can start thinking about the infinite returns that are capable that are available with debt when you're at that level the further down the business food chain you are the less i think you should even be thinking about debt because it adds such an element of risk that it's just not worth it and I think the coronavirus is really driving that point, point home. And, you know, my recommendation is, you know, businesses, unless you're making 500,000 plus a year minimum, you know, I really think you should think about not borrowing at all. And you certainly shouldn't borrow until you have a reasonable expectation of what your returns are gonna be on a consistent basis. And returns, meaning revenue, that's, well diversified by other products, location, uh, different distribution channels, etc. You need to be diversified enough to weather the loss of a customer, the loss of a distribution channel, um, etc. So that's that's my thoughts on on debt, and just want to remind business owners to be very careful when you think about. Um, when you think about going out there and borrowing money, you're not a private company and the risk is very great. So I hope that helped. I wanna do a uh, quick chat about the difference between managing gross margin and operating profit margin or even net margin for that matter, because net margin's what ultimately gets distributed to shareholders. And I was thinking, because I kind of did a talk about this yesterday, but in terms of a startup and how that might be managed differently than a mature company, ours being a mature company, um, but we have a lot of startups as well. Um, you know, when we have a startup company and, you know, it's just in its first year or two, 
I understand and operate under the assumption that we're going to likely have a negative or low net profit margin because we're investing in that company. But we always want to make sure that our gross profit margin is very near in line with where we think it's going to be when the company is mature. Now, what's the difference and and why why do I think that way? Well, you know, gross profit margin is a measure of how well you produce your good or service relative to the price you're charging. And operating profit margin is more of a reflection of is your product or service that you're selling viable as a company. So the gross profit margin, which takes just into account direct costs, you know, for us that's a lot of labor, but some supply costs as well, cleaning chemicals, etc. Um, you know, it's it's something where if we can't get that to make sense, then we know no matter how much we sell and no matter how efficient we get in the GNA expense category, it's not a viable service. So in you know the when we you know bid bid jobs and bid locations, each one of those needs to stand on its own from a gross profit margin perspective and make sure that it is able to achieve the profit margins that we're expecting. But when we have a startup, its first year, it's not going to produce a positive operating profit. Why? Well, number one, presumably we've hired a very capable executive to serve as the president of that new startup division that we're doing. And that person is going to cost some serious money. And they don't have enough jobs to support their, they, they don't have enough jobs to support themselves and their salary. And they may have a, another executive who's running actual job, multiple job locations and, and things like that, or a salesperson. And the other reason is even when we start getting enough jobs to support that executive's salary, we're looking to gain market share. So we want to invest, as soon as we know a business is viable, each of those job sites are, you know, from a gross margin perspective, are in line and our gross margin is where we expect it to be for that division as a whole. We want to double down and those always come in the form of G&A expenses, maybe more salespersons, more marketing efforts, um, you know, more equipment, uh, things like that. But there's some kind of a doubling down we're doing because we know that those extra investment dollars that we're spending every additional customer that we pick up, every additional location we pick up, we know that we're going to get a good return on those. Now, at some point, a business division becomes viable enough where you ratchet that stuff down and you're actually looking to make a, a, a return. And where is that point? I mean, it's different for every business, but you know, if you're if you're dealing with a startup business, you don't want to choke off growth and market and market share too early by distributing and taking and showing net profits. You want to reinvest that in G&A expenses that are going to be designed to get you market share. Now, obviously, you've got to have a good strategy for doing that. You got to know who your target customers are, and you got to make sure those investment dollars actually go to gaining market share, and that's a a challenge in and of itself. But, you know, the, the greater point is, is in a startup, 
you never want to sit there and and choke off your growth and market share just to turn a significant net profit. Now, at some point you also don't want to continue investing dollars into it. So you want to get at least a zero net profit margin, meaning you're breaking even or even slightly positive, but you are still going to overinvest in your G&A expenses. And I shouldn't say overinvest. You're still going to invest in your G&A expenses which artificially decreases your net profit margins temporarily until you get the size and the market share that you feel is appropriate. And that's obviously a dance that you do with, with uh, you know, it, it depends on the goals of your shareholders, your, your stakeholders, etc. But, you know, you are often going to have depressed operating profit margins for the sake of growth. But with that being said, you always want to pay attention to your gross profit margins to make sure that they are where you need to be from day one. Now, obviously, your gross profit margins should go up a little over time. You, your labor should get more, more efficient due to training and just experience. Um, you should be able to buy supplies at reduced costs due to scale and things like that. But still, you got to focus initially on gross profit margins to make sure that your job is viable or your, your, the startup that you're doing is viable from day one. But your operating profit margins and then, of course, your net profit margins, if, if they are different from operating profit margins, which often, often they aren't in a startup. You, you don't need to worry as much about those other than you need to make sure that you are on target to not run out of money before you can get more investment. So that's a question too is, you know, how much investment dollars do you have and are you going to get? If you get, you know, $100,000 or a million dollars or whatever it is to start up your business, how reason how how reasonable do you think it is that you'll get more money? If if you're not going to get more money or you're worried about that, well, you've got to set your goals to be that you are going to break even from a net profit margin perspective prior to running out of cash. Whereas a lot of startups, you know, they once they show success, they know that they can continue to raise investment dollars. And there's risk there because you may not always be able to continue to raise investment dollars. And if you're turning a negative profit margin, it's probably going to be hard to raise debt dollars, although that 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 is possible nowadays as well. So you've got to take into account how much investment dollars do you think you can get, and that's where you're going to manage net profit margin in a startup. The less investment dollars you think you're going to be able to raise over time, or the less investment dollars you want to raise, because you may not want to dilute your company, obviously, you have a shorter runway and you know you need to turn a positive net profit margin sooner. So those are just thoughts um, as I drive into work thinking about, you know, what is the difference between gross profit margin and net profit margin and how do you manage those differently, particularly in a startup.